In the name of the living God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. 457-55-5462. Years ago, the owner of LifeLock Identity Protection introduced his company with a rather lurid commercial. If you can remember that far back, you'll remember that Todd Davis, the founder and CEO of LifeLock, had a truck driven through a very busy metropolitan city with his social security number boldly printed along each side of the truck. All while he shouted from a megaphone, 457-55-5462, that is my real social security number. It's at that moment that a voice came on the air and you heard, have you ever worried about identity theft? If so, you need to know about LifeLock. Todd Davis was so confident in his product that he even handed out flyers to complete strangers with all of his information on it. It was bulletproof. It was surefire. It was guaranteed. It also caused Todd Davis to have his identity stolen 13 times. <laughs> Surprisingly, I found out LifeLock is still in business, alive and well in Tempe, Arizona, of all places. Whether you subscribe to a company like LifeLock or not, one of the things I think that advertisement pointed out was there's a concern in each and every one of us. That ad was very revealing. We are all concerned about one thing about ourselves, our identities. All of us are concerned about who we are and what we are and why we are. And we ought most importantly be concerned about whose we are. Our identity is extremely valuable. Psychologist Sharon Heshmat wrote that defining oneself is among one of the most difficult choices a person can ever make. In the face of identity struggle, many end up adopting darker identities as a compensatory method of experiencing aliveness or staving off depression and meaninglessness. He writes that the ultimate goal for individuals is to develop and nurture those choices that are consistent with one's true self. To deny the true self is to deny the very best in us. I've got to tell you, I could not agree any more with Dr. Heshmet. We find meaning and wholeness in life by nurturing and developing our lives in accordance with our true selves. Where I think Dr. Heshmet and I might disagree is on what the definition of our true self is. This morning, we come here and we celebrate the baptism of the Lord. And in a few moments, we're going to baptize a couple of individuals into his church and into his body. And we're also going to be reminded of our own baptismal vows. Jesus' baptism and our baptism both center around identity. When we were baptized, we were all given new identities. And so this morning, I want us to look at what is our baptismal identity. And I want us to do that by looking at Jesus' baptismal identity and what that teaches about our own so if you haven't turned to Matthew 3, please do so. It's on page 784 of your Bible. Matthew begins the story of Jesus' baptism by telling us that Jesus' foul mouth, locust-eating, hellfire, and brimstone cousin was out by the Jordan River baptizing Israel. 
Now, the Jordan River is a unique place. It's not any ordinary river. If you'll remember, 1,500 years before John, a man named Joshua, who was Moses' successor, led the people of Israel out of the wilderness and into the promised land through the Jordan River. It was to be a place where Israel was to leave behind their slavery, their doubts, their sinful habits. It was where God was going to make and transform his people and bless them. And so the Jordan River was in many ways a place where Israel had once been baptized. And so we read in Matthew 3, there was John baptizing once again. It was John's way of saying, Israel, you need to be baptized again. Because in many ways, Israel had gone in a bad way. History had begun to repeat itself. Israel once again found itself in slavery. Only this time it wasn't to the Egyptians, it was to the Romans. And in many ways, the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, they, they were represented different sins of Israel. And then there was John, a voice crying in the wilderness, the same wilderness where Israel once wandered in desperation. In the midst of all of that, we read that Jesus appeared, and he came to John to be baptized. But John was a little confused by all this, because in John's mind, Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. We see in verse 14, and I'm going to read from the CCV translation. That's the Chase Campbell version of the Bible. John says this, whoa, 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 hold your horses there, Baba. You don't need to be baptized. You don't have anything to repent of. You're not like the failed leadership. You're not like one of these notorious sinners. And you're certainly not like one of the Romans. You don't have any reason to be baptized. In fact, if there, anyone's going to baptize anyone, you should baptize me. To which Jesus responds and says, John, you're right. I'm not here to be baptized because I need to repent of sins or I need to be freed from slavery. I'm here because I'm Israel. I'm the one who Israel was meant to be but could not. I'm here to do what Israel and what everyone in this world ought to do but cannot. And so if I'm going to be true Israel, I have to do what Israel was supposed to do. And so I have to be baptized. But you see, Jesus wasn't being baptized to put something bad to an end. He was being baptized to bring something new and wonderful. John quickly realizes that he's not going to win the argument with his cousin, so he gets down to business baptizing Jesus. Now pay attention and stay tuned for, to what happens next, because what happens next is important. It's a condensed version of everything that God has in store for Jesus and for Israel and for you. And for me. Look at verse 16. It says, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. These two sentences give us the whole shape of the biblical story. And they tie Jesus' story into our own. Let me explain. You see, when Jesus comes out of the water, we're told two things happen at that moment. First, heaven was opened. And second, he saw a dove coming down. Now, when you think of a dove flying above water, what image comes to mind? I hope one of those images would be Noah and Noah's Ark. 
If you remember in Noah's Ark, when the flood waters stopped raining, Noah sent out a dove, and it came back empty-handed, or empty-beaked, better said, probably. <laughs> so he sent it out a second time a few days later. This time it came back with a twig, thus ensuring we would have an image for all of eternity to paste on all of our lovely Hallmark Christmas cards, right? A few days later, he sent the bird out a third time, only this time the dove didn't return because the, sub, the floodwaters had subsided, showing that God was receding the waters. It was at that moment that God sent a rainbow to tell Noah and to tell us that he would never destroy the earth again. But there was a little problem with that promise. You see, the earth was still full of sin. And so God had made this promise, a covenant, but he still had to deal with sin in the world. And so what we read on from there is God tried different methods of dealing with sin. He tried law. He tried sacrifice. He tried ritual and order, but none of it worked. Sin still filled the world, and it still filled us. But then something happens in Matthew 3. We see the dove appear again. And just like the rainbow, it's a sign sent from God. A sign that says Jesus is God's ultimate answer to the problem of sin. At Jesus' baptism, Noah's dove finally comes back. Salvation literally comes home to roost. And what God is saying here is that God is going to drown sin in water through Jesus. And that dove marks the beginning of a new humanity. A humanity out of baptismal waters. Paul would later write in Romans 6 that we are therefore buried with Christ through baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead, through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so the first thing we see in Jesus' baptism, the first thing we learn is that he is the one who's come to do what the ark, what sacrifice, what law could not do. Save us, redeem us from sin and death. Jesus is God's redemption. And what Paul tells us is that if we've been baptized, that's our identity too. That's now ours through Christ. We have died to sin, and we've been given new lives. Now, I got bad news. This does not mean August or Paul or Henry or even Peter are going to be perfect human beings. I'm sorry. I know. I know. It doesn't mean after we're baptized that we go on living sinless lives. What it means is that we're no longer dominated by sin. We're no longer captives to sin. We're free to live out our true selves. Kind of makes me think of one of C.S. Lewis's greatest books, The Great Divorce. Everyone needs to read The Great Divorce. I even had somebody from the first service buy The Great Divorce right after the service, okay? So if you don't own a copy, make sure you get a copy today. In the book, the, the protagonist, which is also the narrator, finds himself in a grim, joyless city called the Grey Town. It's a city where it rains perpetually. To be honest, it kind of sounds like my home city of Pittsburgh, you know? <laughs> a city known for rain and gray. Well, the narrator is exploring Greytown, and eventually he comes across a bus stop for those who desire an excursion to some other place. Later in the book, we discover that the destination is the foothills of heaven. Anyone can get on the bus. Anyone can leave Greytown. But what we're told is that only a few passengers actually decide to board the bus. 
as the bus leaves Greytown and ascends into uh, heaven and out of the rain clouds, the passengers on the bus begin to experience a change. Their bodies that were once normal and solid begin to become transparent and faint and vapor-like. It's then revealed that these passengers are ghosts. When the passengers reach their destination, they disembark in the most beautiful place they had ever seen. But here's the problem. Because everything in heaven is unyieldingly solid compared to themselves, the landscape causes them immense pain to walk on. Even the soft grass pierces their shadowy feet. It's at that moment shining men and women come to meet them and to urge them to continue walking into heaven. They promise that as they travel onward, they'll become more and more solid and feel less and less discomfort. But not everyone is sold on the idea. One of my favorite characters, notably a bishop, decides he's not willing to go on the journey. He says, you know, he's so used to framing his faith in abstract pseudo-intellectual terms that he can no longer definitively say whether he believes in God or not. And so he gets back on the bus. But for those who continue on, they're transformed into the people God had always created them to become. I share that because it's an image of what we've been given in baptism. Through baptism, we've been brought into the promised land, so to speak. We've been given these new, redeemed identities. Now, we can return to the bus. We can go back to our former lives, just as the bishop chose to do. But if we continue on, if we press on, even through the discomfort, even through the pain, what we'll discover is the richest, fullest life imaginable, the life we were always created to have. That's who we are in Christ. Apart from that, we're like ghosts living hollow lives. But thanks be to God, we've been given a new life, a new identity, apart from sin and death and slavery. That is our true selves. But that's not all there is to Jesus. There's much more to Jesus and his baptism. And so therefore, there's much more to us than just redemption, as wonderful and as incredible as that is. As we continue reading Matthew, we also find that Matthew tells us that this dove was no ordinary dove. He tells us that it was the Holy Spirit, and that after the Holy Spirit descended upon him, we read that a voice said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And so right there, not only are we told that Jesus is God's salvation, but we also learn that Jesus is God's Son, his beloved Son. What we have here in Matthew 3 is a vivid image of the Trinity. It's a vivid image of the kind of relationship Jesus shares with the Father and the Holy Spirit. It's also an image of the kind of relationship God wants to have with us, the kind of relationship God gifts us through baptism. So yes, Jesus saves us from our sins, and the remarkable part is on top of that, we get a restored relationship with God. I love that because it's telling us that God doesn't just save us from the fires of hell, but he pulls us into a relationship with him. Paul says in Galatians, for you are all children of God, just as Jesus is a child, through faith in Jesus. You have been united with him in baptism. The relationship that Jesus has with the Father and the Holy Spirit can be a relationship we have. We are adopted into this family. 
This means we are not some object that God decided to just simply have mercy upon. We are children that God loves, that who he has patience with, and continues to shower us with grace and mercy. And so when we don't perfectly live out our new identities, he is patient with us. When we fall back into our lives of sin and slavery, he showers us with mercy over and over again. When we're not able to live up to his standards of holiness, he lavishes us with grace. We know that God is our just ruler. He's our judge. But here in Matthew 3, we learn that God is also our father who wants us to to succeed. He is cheering us on. So we're redeemed. We're children. And the last part I want to look at is the climax of Jesus' baptism. It's the final thing that the Father says. I am overjoyed with him. Here again, Jesus is identified not only as the one who can satisfy God, but also the only one who can bring God joy. Something that no one else can do on their own. But again, because Jesus' identity becomes our own identity, this too becomes the fruit of our baptismal identity. We become people who bring God joy, whom God delights in. And it's not because we're fabulous in and of ourselves with all of our brains and our looks and our money and our athletic prowess. We're great and we bring God joy because when God looks at us, he sees Jesus. Imagine for a moment the clouds opening up and saying, I'm overjoyed with you. I'm overjoyed with you. That's remarkable. Now, I know that might be hard for some of us to hear because we're programmed to think that that kind of love and affection has to be earned. But here we're being told it's already ours through baptism. Years ago, I read a story about a woman named Fiona Campbell. And with a last name like Campbell, you know she's bound to have an interesting story. Fiona is an English long-distance walker. She walked over 20,000 miles in 11 years. But what makes her story really interesting to me is the motivation behind all of her walking. You see, her father was one of the most elite battalion, battalion members of the British Army. Unfortunately, tragically, she felt that she could never be good enough for her father, that she could never live up to his standards. And so this festered resentment and anger within her. And so by the time she was getting ready to go off to college, She decided to embark on a walk, a long, long walk, an 11-year walk. During her time walking, she was invited to talk to a group of third graders. And just like third graders do, they asked her why she decided to walk so much. Here's what she said to them. She said, you know, sometimes when you're cross, what you might decide to do is to take a walk and cool off. Well, I decided I needed to take a long walk, to which one little child responded, 11 years is a really long walk. And Fiona said, well, I was very, very, very cross. She was angry because she felt that she could never please her father. And when you watch her interview, you'll notice that there is nothing that could convince her that she was good enough for her dad. Some of us feel that way towards our own Heavenly Father. And so what we can do is we can spend our entire lives trying to earn that love. Or we can be like Fiona. And just walk away from him. But here in Matthew 3, we're told that we're already good enough. That we're not just good enough. We bring our Father joy. God is overjoyed with us. 
We can't take that for granted, nor can we neglect to remind ourselves that God is pleased with us, not because we're wonderful, but because Jesus is. So here in Matthew 3, we learn all about who Jesus is. And we also learn about who we are. Jesus is God's ultimate plan of redemption. He's the only begotten Son of the Father and the one who brings the Father pleasure and joy. We also learn who we are because we've taken on this identity through faith and baptism. Now, we're not going to always live into these new identities perfectly, but perfectionism is not how we receive them received them to begin with. It was a gift. It was grace. And this gift is so wonderful, it behooves us to guard these identities, to live into them as best we can, and to share them with our neighbor and with this world. Because the more we live into these identities, the more we become our true selves, redeemed children of God who bring joy and delight to our Father. That's who I am. That's who you are. Peter, Paul, Henry, August. That's who you are about to become. Children of God, redeemed, who brings your father delight. Never forget that. Guard that. Live into it as best you can. Because that's your true identity. Thanks be to God. Amen.